Um, before we do get to our text today, I do have one more thing, just kind of shifting gears um, on this. Uh, six days ago, um, last Monday, there was a massive earthquake that devastated um, South Central Turkey and Northwestern Syria. And since then, uh, if you've been following the news, you know that nearly 30,000 people have already been um, verified as that they've died. And millions of people are homeless. And uh, this is a, a, the scale of this is hard to grab a hold of for me. I, 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 I struggle to grasp the scale of the damage and the destruction that's done there. And I also feel overwhelmed when I come to pray. Um, and I just sometimes don't know how to pray about these things. And if you feel the same way, um, I'll, I'll invite you to pray with me. We're going to pray together about this because I think this is the right kind of time to do that. And so uh, you can respond with what's uh, in bold up on the screen and I'll pray and lead us in this time. God, our Father, you are a God of compassion. You hear the countless cries rising to you from Turkey and Syria today. So many lives have been shattered, so many hearts broken, and we feel overwhelmed. But you are a mighty Savior, so we ask you now to save. Christ, our King, we pray today in line with 1 Timothy 2, 2 for President Erdogan of Turkey and al-Assad of Syria that their governments will cut through the bureaucracy, leading courageously and granting free access to the aid agencies seeking to serve on the ground. Holy Spirit, our comforter, make yourself known in this grief. And in the chaos of this crisis, we cry out for divine connections and a spirit of cooperation instead of competition. Would you supernaturally streamline the important relationships between NGOs and suppliers, churches, and other agencies for the sake of those who are suffering most? We pray you would protect and provide for those who are grieving, for those who are homeless, and for those who are bringing emergency relief. We pray also for your church in these places. Send out your people at this time to bring good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted. Amen. Would you stand with me today for the reading of God's word? Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 24. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray. Um, Father, we do give you thanks for the resurrection of your son Jesus. We give you thanks for this passage of scripture and the implications of it, and we just pray that you would help us to take this and apply it to our hearts, that we would live into the truth that's contained here in this text, and that it would translate into the work of our hands, that you might be glorified in every conceivable area of our life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I have good news for those of you who are tired of winter. Good news. Uh, this week, the city of Vancouver saw its first cherry tree blossoming. Yes. Yes. This is to be rejoiced about. Our families lived in Vancouver for nearly 12 years, and it is my great pleasure every spring to take pictures of the first cherry blossoms and send them to my family in Alberta. 
where last night it was minus 10, minus 15 with the wind chill. And, uh, and just to remind them that there is hope here. <laughs> when the cherry blossoms start to brighten the streets of Vancouver, uh, that little glimpse of springtime beauty, it does something to each and every person, doesn't it? Something happens when we see this. It's a sign that winter is nearly over, that spring is coming, and then we know that summer is to follow. The days get longer, the weather gets warmer, the skies get less gray, the seasonal depression starts to melt off my body. The mood of the city gets visibly happier. Every year, usually in February, the Vancouver cherry blossoms act as the sign that spring is coming. And we celebrate those first blossoms, not just for their beauty, but because we know that they are one of the first things in an order of events that will bring an end to winter. So in a sense, the cherry blossoms in the city of Vancouver are the first fruits of spring. The first tree to blossom is the guarantee that soon all of the 40,000 cherry trees around the city are going to be radiant with varied shades of pink. In this sense, they are the first fruits sign of the hope that is to come. The first blossoms are the sign that something is set in motion that we are still waiting to see the fullness of, but they are the sign that the fullness of it is guaranteed to come. And that's the pattern of our text today. I want to show you, we're going to look at three points today, how Jesus is our first fruits, Jesus our second Adam, and Jesus our victor. Jesus, our first fruits, Jesus, our second Adam, and Jesus, our victor. First, Jesus, our first fruits. Um, with respect to the conversation around the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15 is probably the most important chapter that we have in the Bible. Um, in, the, in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, which we looked at a number of weeks ago, Paul goes to great lengths to communicate the essence of the gospel, that Christ has died, that Christ has been buried, that Christ is risen, and that he is alive. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, I want to read it to you. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he is being exceedingly clear that Jesus is alive. He also goes to great lengths in the subsequent texts to show that if Jesus has not been raised, that you won't be either. That if he has not been raised from the dead, he goes to great lengths to show us that Christianity is a complete waste of time. So what we looked at in particular last week, where it says in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, and if Christ, now if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. And he's saying, if you reject the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christianity's over, move on, find something else that you can build your life on. That's the point that he's getting at in the text. So there's two important things that he covers early in 1 Corinthians, earlier than our text today. One, Jesus is alive. That is very central to the whole of Christianity. And two, that if Jesus is not alive, you might as well stop. There's no hope for you. Very important truths that he's covered thus far in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And, and writing about our text today, one scholar, Andrew Wilson, he said, in this next paragraph, he makes the same argument. Paul's making the same argument. 
more positively and in a way that has brought hope to billions of grieving and suffering Christians for 20 centuries. Christ has indeed risen from the dead. Praise God. Because he has, you will too. That's the center of our text. After showing them the absurdity of thinking that Christianity matters at all without the historic literal resurrection of Jesus, he now turns to this positive aspect of the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. Look at the text, verse 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Biblically speaking, first fruits, the first fruits of the harvest. It's got a very important, uh, it's a very important symbol, a very important truth. It's got a rich history. It comes with an offering to God and a celebration of his provision. We find this in Leviticus chapter 23. We see that the first grain of the harvest needed to be brought to the Lord as an offering. And that the people were not to eat of the rest of the harvest until they had come and offered the first fruits of their harvest unto God. The first fruit offering acknowledges God's provision, but it's also looking forward to the rest of the harvest that they know is ready to come. David Pryor says, here Paul is saying that a whole new age has dawned with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is the first fruits of an immense harvest consisting of all those who are in Christ and who belong to Christ. So in the same way as the first cherry blossoms are a sign and a guarantee of the spring that is to come, in a much more profound sense, the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee that all who belong to Jesus will also be raised to new eternal life. So death doesn't mean what death used to mean because Jesus is risen. And in his resurrection, there is a new beginning of a new humanity that is no longer subjected to the old ways of death. Something has changed. Jesus, our first fruits. That's number one. Number two, Jesus, our second Adam. And if we are going to spend some time talking about Jesus as the second Adam, we need to go back to the beginning to figure out what happened with the first Adam and then why that matters for us today. So I want to take you to the first book of the Bible. It's called Genesis. We're going to be in chapters one and two, looking at that and then into chapter three very quickly, just to see what's going on with the first Adam and why we needed a second Adam. The book of Genesis, the first book, talks about the way that God gave humanity our identity and our calling, which is all tied up in our relationship to God. Some people call this the cultural mandate. This is what humanity was supposed to do. It's who we're called to be and what we're supposed to do. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's showing them their identity in terms of how they are to live that out as part of his creation, participating in his work in the world. See, God created the heavens and the earth and he created humanity and he 
commanded them concerning his will for them. His creation was good. His will for humanity was good. And through him allowing humanity to be a part of what he was doing in creation, he was showing them how much he loved them. There's a restatement of this in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Again, that's a restatement of this cultural mandate. Verse 16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So in the midst of their call to work and keep the garden and to participate in God's creation in the world, there is something that is forbidden. God forbids something. Every time God forbids something in scripture, it is for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. So we should pay attention to that. Not just here in Genesis, but anywhere you find in the scripture that God forbids something. There's a reason. It may not make sense to you, but there's a reason. So what did they do? What did Adam and Eve do in the garden? Did they just obediently tend the garden of God? No, together. They were tempted to disobey God's command. And then they gave into that temptation by taking the fruit of the forbidden tree and eating of it. And I want to show you the first immediate effects of their sin. It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The first effects of their sin and rebellion and their disobedience before God were to try and cover themselves up and to hide their own shame. They tried to hide from the presence of God, which just in case you're thinking that might be a great idea, is impossible. They tried to hide from the presence of God because they knew the guilt of their disobedience broke their relationship with him in some way. So why did they feel ashamed and why did they hide? Genesis 3, earlier on, it shows us that Satan had tempted them. In the second half of verse 1, Satan is tempting them and he says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. There's a restatement of the consequences of their disobedience. If they do this, the consequence is death. They knew the stakes. They knew the command of God. They knew the consequences of their action, and they still sinned. And just in case you're feeling all high and mighty, you would have too. I'm with you. We would have. We've proven that time and time again. This rebellion and this sin is how death enters into the human story. So humanity's fall into sin is also humanity's fall from relationship with God. And when this had happened, the scriptures say, this then becomes true of every human being ever born ever since. This is now part of the human condition. In this sense, all of humanity is in Adam. We are in Adam. 
So when Adam sinned, it broke humanity's relationship with God, it fractured our relationship with others, and it changed the way we relate to all of creation. I need you to see this. There are three things that happen, at least three things that are happening, big categorical things that happen. Our relationship with God was changed. Our relationship with others was changed. And our relationship with all of creation was changed and not for the good. With God and with others and with all of creation. That's why we need a second Adam. There was something that was lost that we can't regain in our own strength. So look back at the text in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And there's a comparison and a contrast here between Adam and Jesus, the second Adam. Between the first Adam who disobeyed and brought death and the second Adam, Jesus, who perfectly obeyed and brought life. See, the first Adam died and remained dead and the second Adam died and is risen. In Adam, our relationship with God is broken and in Christ, our relationship with God is restored. See, because of Adam's sin, his disobedience, all of humanity functionally has Adam as a representative head. That's why all humanity experiences death now. But because of Jesus' obedience and his sinlessness and his sacrificial death and his resurrection, those who trust in Jesus' work in their place now have Christ as their representative head and experience the new life of the resurrection. So you are either in Adam, or you are in Christ. Your representative head of the old humanity is Adam, and the representative head of the new humanity, the resurrection humanity, is Christ. Adam is the head of old humanity that is ruled by sin and death. Jesus is the head of new humanity that is ruled by resurrection and life. And this is how Paul explained it to the Romans. He talked to them about this as well. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. It says, For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so also one act of righteousness leads to justification and life of all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. See, Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Adam's disobedience brought death. Jesus' obedience brought life. And we are saved from the effects of our sin through the transformative effects of the resurrection. Look back at our text, verses 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, I think Paul's point when he's writing this to the church in Corinth, his point here is that everything that was lost in Adam's sin and death is restored in profound ways through Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, this obviously has big implications for our life of salvation, for our future resurrection with God. But the reason I started here in Genesis 1 talking about this and talking about who God created humanity to be 
is that I want you to see that they're connected, that there is a connection here. See, if you're a Christian, that means that you are in Christ and you shall be made alive. But it also means that you can live into the reality of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection, and you can live into what has been restored through Jesus' resurrection from the dead here and now. There are implications of the resurrection that are at work in our lives daily. Here's what I mean. The first Adam was created to be an image bearer, to be in community, to raise a family, to work, steward God's creation with care. That was the cultural mandate that I showed you from Genesis chapter 1. When Adam sinned, all of that was broken and made difficult. But Christ is risen. The parts of our identity that were formerly broken and lost due to sin in Adam are now presently restored in Christ. This has to do with us being embodied humans in community, the way we participate in our family life, the way we think about our work, and the way that we steward God's creation with care. That's why I think the resurrection of Jesus is the most relevant topic we can look at, and it's also why we're going so slow through 1 Corinthians 15. I think it's very practical. I know sometimes it can feel like it's that thing out there floating around and you can't quite grab a hold of it. I want us to grab a hold of it and pull it into meaning and purpose and application on a daily basis. The resurrection of Christ is one of the most meaningful things and I think even concrete realities that we can hang on to as followers of Jesus. It's the most relevant topic we can consider. Everything lost by being in Adam is restored by being in Christ. Okay, unless you only think that that has to do with your future and has nothing to do with the way that we live our lives today, let me quote from an author and a professor named Ross Hastings from his book that is titled The Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just so you know, you better be smart and really bring it if you title your book The Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he does. This is a long quote because I can't say it better. And if I try to say it better, it's going to take me a lot longer. So here's a long quote. If you're one of those people and I see you every week taking pictures of the quotes, you're going to have to take a lot of pictures or just email me. I'll send you the whole thing. It's fun. <laughs> the point is this, he says. Understanding the gospel of the resurrection within the full revelation of the story of God's work in the world, of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, from Genesis to Revelation, it necessitates that we keep creation and redemption together. The fact that redemption through Christ was accomplished by the resurrection of Jesus in a body means that it is redemption of creation. This means that Christians are not redeemed to be taken out of creation, to be otherworldly, but to be earthy, fully human, embodied persons in community. Christians are to be people who delight in their union with the risen Christ in heaven and yet who seek to bring heaven to earth every day. As Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Keeping creation and redemption together in light of the resurrection of Jesus means that Christians understand that all aspects of the cultural mandate given to the first Adam are part of the vocation of the new humanity in and under the last Adam. Christ followers therefore delight in their everyday work as the continuation of the command given to the first Adam, knowing realistically that the fall has complicated their work. 
and that there is always a need for Christ's risen redemptive influence in their work. Our commitment to work and to Sabbath will always be inspired by the last Adam who finished the work of the Father, who finished the work the Father gave him to do, and was raised up in glory as an expression of the Father's delight. When Adam sinned, it broke humanity's relationship with God, it fractured humanity's relationship with one another, and it changed humanity's relationship to all of creation, to the whole world around us. When Christ was raised, it opened a way for our relationship with God to be restored. It restored our identity as his people in this world, and it changes the way we then relate to the whole world around us. Verse 21, 1 Corinthians 15. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And Jesus' resurrection is the promise and the prototype of our future resurrection. But he is our king, and as our king, the order is that he is first. As the firstfruits. And then at his return, we too shall be raised. The first cherry blossoms of the spring signal the promise of what is to come. And the resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits is the promise that when he returns, we shall be raised with him. There's a promise that something is coming. It's a guarantee. Jesus is our first fruits. He is our second Adam. And third, he is also our victor. See, we are waiting for the fullness of the promise of the resurrection. We are waiting for his return. We wait. It's important, in a sense, as we wait, that we know what time it is. Verse 24 says, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the fa- uh, his, sorry, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. We need to know what time it is, and I don't mean looking at your watch. On the timeline of history, we have one end. That's the end that the text talks about. Then comes the end. That is to come. That is the return of Jesus, where he delivers his kingship or his rule and all things that are under his rule. He delivers to his father. That is the end, where no other rule or authority or power will ever again eclipse his but where every rule and authority and power will bow their knees to Jesus and confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the end. When he returns, that's on the future end of our timeline. On the past end, we have a new beginning. Therefore, the beginning of our timeline in reality is the resurrection of Jesus. The historic bodily resurrection of Jesus The literal resurrection of Jesus is the new beginning of our timeline, the timeline that we are on. He is our first fruits. He is the second Adam who succeeded in obedience where Adam failed. In the truest sense, the 
end that we are waiting for finds its beginning in the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the grave as the first fruits or the down payment on what is promised. So the timeline is past, resurrection of Jesus, future, return of Jesus. And we live on that timeline in the time in between. Now, where on that timeline we are, I don't know. It doesn't matter that I don't know either. You don't know, and anyone who claims to know, you should run the other direction from. I'm sure at some point this year, someone will buy a billboard somewhere that says they know the date, and that's how you know for sure that's not the day Jesus is coming back. (laughs) We are living on the timeline in between his resurrection and his return, and we are waiting. We are waiting, but we are also living in the power of the future in the midst of the present. We are living in the power of the future in the midst of the present. We are waiting for the fullness of the victory of Jesus to be applied to the whole world, but we are already living in the power of the victory of Jesus as followers of Jesus. Tim Keller said, in the resurrection, we have the presence of the future. The power by which God finally dis- uh, will finally destroy all suffering, evil, deformity, and death at the end of time was, has broken into history now and is available partially but substantially now. When we unite with the risen Christ by faith, that future power that is potent enough to remake the universe comes into us. And because all that is true, we live different. We live different. Like, I know Christianity is weird. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here, that's awesome. Before I was a follower of Jesus, I just thought Christianity was weird. Then I became a follower of Jesus and I confirmed that it was weird. And then I became a pastor and I perpetuated that it's weird. You know, there, you go to, I know there's signs in both Austin, Texas and Portland, Oregon that say like, keep Portland weird, keep Austin weird. It's just keep Christianity weird. I think that's good. We live different. We live by a different set of guidelines. We live by a different understanding of reality. We live by a different power source than people around us. And it's weird until you are in. Once you become a follower of Jesus, you go, this kind of all makes sense. But it doesn't mean it's normal. It's not normal. We're called to be different. We're called to live different. We're called to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. We're actually called to be different. It's okay to be different. It's okay to stand out. It's okay for it to be awkward when you don't laugh at something. It's okay for it to be awkward when you go through untold suffering and people around you go, why aren't you rattled? It's okay. You have a different power source than they understand. Now, since we're talking about baptisms at Easter and some of you definitely need to get baptized, let me take you to Romans 6 and talk about this for a second. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been, that's in the past, baptized into Christ, uh, baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Verse 4 says, we were, past tense, buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk presently in an ongoing kind of way in newness of life. Verse 5 says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be in the future united with him in a resurrection like his. 
There's something going on in this text that we need to understand. Baptism is a picture of what by faith you have already received. That when you are baptized, it is a picture or an outward symbol or sign that you have been buried with him. He took your sin upon himself and it killed him. And then he was buried. We too are buried in Christ. And then when we're brought back up out of the water, as long as the people doing the baptisms are strong enough to do so, we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus who is alive. We have been baptized. We have identified with the death and burial of Jesus. We have identified with the resurrection of Jesus. And the promise is that because of that, we shall be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus has been raised, so we will be too. What does it mean to live in between these times, between his resurrection and his return? Why is it so important that we understand this? Let me tell you. Because if we don't understand it, we won't endure difficulties in our lives very well. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can't, we can't think of the timeline of our lives the same way as the world thinks of their timeline. The Christian life is not understood the same way as the world around us is understood. The world around us thinks in terms of past and then present and then future. And I just want to say that if you think that way, you will be fear-filled, you may be fear-filled, and you may be unsure and have a sense that you might not make it because you're worried about the present and it feels shaky right now. So past, present, future, if you're shaky in the present, you might not make it to the future. Christianity has a better story than that. It reorients our timeline. You need to live within the promises of God that are right in front of you. And one of the ways that you do that is that you realize our faith is to be understood in terms of past, future, and present. And what we're doing is we're grabbing a hold of the future promises of God and we are bringing them into the present right now. And that's what you need to do when you get the diagnosis. When they say the Cells are multiplying and it doesn't look good. When they say the treatment didn't work. When you get the news that she's gone now. Or he's not going to make it. When you get the news that nobody wants and that every single one of us at some point in our lives are going to receive. The news of suffering or death or hardship or whatever the case is. You need to know that you are not counting on the hope you have in this life only. You need to know that you are able to import power from the future promises of God and draw that power of the resurrection life of Christ into the present circumstances. And guess what? That's how you live different when you suffer. We have a promise of what the future holds, so we don't then live unsure. We are made new here and now because the future victory of Christ is actually invading our present moment. We don't live with past, present, and future with sort of some foggy notion of what's coming. We live with past, a clear future of Christ's victory imported into the present moment we live. The resurrection of Jesus has reoriented all of history in such a way that, that we can live in the present, with the future promise being what guides us. Okay, have you ever watched a scary movie? I don't like scary movies, but a suspenseful movie? 
I really don't like scary movies. Like, I can't do it, just so you know. I'm not that guy. You talk to me about your recent horror film, I'll pray for you. <laughs> I've never been that guy. Never been that guy. But suspense, I like. You ever watch a suspenseful movie and you sit there and, like, I'm a guy that feels stuff viscerally. I, I don't know if you can tell that. So, like, I'm watching a movie, my heart rate will go up. And I'm like, I'm not the guy just sitting there kind of like eating the popcorn, like, I wonder what happens next. I'm like, <laughs> like, I'm leaning in. I'm that person. Allison laughs at me. I pull the covers over, the blanket up over my face. I, the, all sorts of things. I get nervous. I get filled with anxiety. I don't know what's going to happen. How are the producers of this film and the directors going to resolve this character's narrative arc in a way that is satisfactory to me that means I can go to sleep tonight, worry, you know, not worrying about how they're doing. <laughs> like, like I, I want to know that it's got a nice happy ending. I like shows of the bow at the end of every 40 minutes. That, that's my stuff. Okay, you ever watch a suspenseful show and you're feeling the suspense of it? You complete the film. It's all Okay. You breathe a sigh of relief because you're not filled with that anxiety anymore. You ever come back years later and watch it again? When you already know the end? You don't have the same pitter-patter of your heart because you already know how it's going to resolve. He is risen. He is coming back again. It's going to be okay. I already know the end. I know that Christ gains the victory. I know that I'm living in the power of that victory right now. I don't have all of it yet, but I one day will. It certainly changes the way I think about my current moment. In the good times and the bad, because you know what? Some of you might need to hear this more than you need to hear the suffering thing. Look, if you have not yet suffered, you will. So be prepared for it. But what are you going to do with Jesus before your next great success? Some of you are going to be so successful in a worldly sense in the future. Some of you who are young, some of you who are old, are on the edge of that success. What are you going to do with the pitiable hope of just this life if you don't already know how you're going to handle it when it comes? You've got to live from a future power reserve that is all wrapped up in the victory of Jesus. And you've got to draw that into the moment now. We get to live in the now with a promise of how it is all going to go in the end. Look at verse 24 again. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. To the promise of our future hope reorients how we understand our past sin. Praise God. It reorients how we handle our disappointment. Praise God. But it also reorients how we handle our present suffering and trials. We understand that our past sin is dealt with, that Jesus atoned for that upon the cross, that he died in our place, that he died for our sins, and that on the third day, his resurrection was victory over it all. We know that. As our first fruits, he is the embodiment of, of the promise we're living with. As our second Adam, he is restoring what we lost in the fall. And as our victor, he is guaranteeing our future and allowing us to live with the end in mind. It doesn't remove the difficulty. I don't want to sell you something here today that is not true. It doesn't remove the difficulty of life. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. But it does remove the lack of assurance. 
It removes the pit in your stomach, that anxiety you feel when you're not sure how the film is going to end. When you're in the midst of it all and everything's blowing up all around you and you get the pit in your stomach that you're not sure where he is and you're not sure how it's going to end. You need to know that because of the promises of the return and the future resurrection, that God is in control and that it's going to be okay. You need to know that you can live as a non-anxious presence in the midst of an anxious world. Do you know that this peace that we receive in knowing the future from right now, do you know it's not just for you? This is the most anxious generation has ever been alive. That's what all of the studies have said. They keep commissioning new studies to find out the exact same thing. But all of the studies say there has never been a generation this anxious. That's the entirety of who's alive right now. Never in history has there been a generation this anxious. What if you could bring your assurance and confidence to them and tell them that there's a different way to live? What if you could come to them in the middle of the scary movie they're watching and tell them that you know how it ends? Is that not joy and comfort and all of the things that we want all wrapped up into one statement? It is. It's ours to put on offer. See, Jesus' Jesus' resurrection means in the end, it's all going to be okay. And there is a generation of people who may have never had anyone say that to them before. So when you're holding their hand, when they're weeping, when they're broken, when you're broken, and someone comes along and grabs your hand and goes, trust me, in Christ, it's going to be okay. What if someone's never heard that before? That's ours to offer. It's ours in Christ. And the assurance of it is that Jesus is risen. So ultimately, it's all going to be good. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me as we respond today?